This is the prologue on America's Web Radio, a weekly program bringing you introductions to writers and books you may not be familiar with. My name is Doug Dahlgren, and if you'll allow me, I'll be your host for this next hour. Now, I'm an author myself, and you can find my work on Amazon, Books A Million, Barnes & Noble, all online. Or you can look at DougDahlgren.com and get a little more information there. Now, we call this show the prologue because that's really what it is. And while our introductions are mainly writers, we'd love to bring you interesting people with just a good story to tell from other fields, uh, other endeavors, whatever. If you or someone you know has a book or that interesting story that just needs to be told, please reach out to me through email at one of two ways. You can go to Doug at AmericasWebRadio.com or you can send it to Doug at DougDahlgren.com. I'd love to speak with you or that person you know about being a guest on a future program. Now, our guest this hour is a man whose stature in the southeastern United States, particularly North Georgia, has taken on iconic proportions in recent years. His writings include five books, the latest of which is a historical novel that he brings to us today. There's also many articles, interviews, even video productions known well to millions of visitors from many states to the White County and Helen, Georgia area. Before we bring him on, let me welcome two special groups of listeners that we're very proud we have here. Our folks serving in the armed forces of this country around the world, those men and women working hard to keep us safe back home so we can live our lives as we so often take for granted. Freedom isn't free, and it's bought and paid for daily by those men and women in uniform. We thank you for all that you do. I also want to mention our first responders who are here at home in the local communities, those police, fire, and EMT personnel who rush to our aid when we need help. Thank you for being there and what you do. Now, raised in White County, our guest is an Air Force veteran, an experienced editor, and publications manager. He was an executive vice president of an Atlanta-based advertising and marketing firm and is currently the vice president of the White County Historical Society in North Georgia. His past personal friend, he is a past personal friend of the legendary Ludlow Porch. He also serves as a frequent guest and fill-in host on the area's local radio station, WRWH, out of Cleveland, Georgia. He and his wife, Judy, live on Mount Yona, and for years they operated Yona Mountain Treasures, an art gallery, frame shop, bookstore, and museum located between Helen and Cleveland, Georgia, that I'm sure many of our listeners have visited. His books are normally historical fact, documentaries about places or people of the region he loves. He brings us a slightly different book this hour. It's a historical fiction, a novel, that carries the reader through the areas so many of us know and love. The author is Mr. Emery Jones. His book, The Valley Where They Danced, and this is your prologue. It's 1919. The Great War's ended, and the survivors are coming home. Home to families reeling from the loss of a loved one or the ravages of sacrifice to win a global war. Church, camp meetings, and dinners on the ground play a large role in restoring life to the community. And the novel paints beautiful images of the way things were. Whitewashed houses, 
caring for and milking the cows, churning butter, canning produce, raising chickens, and, of course, cooking with lard. Oh, how we miss that. Two lovers struggle to make their way in a life for their own through areas any visitor will smile in remembering. We're talking about Tallulah Gorge, Nora Mill, the Indian Mountain, Yona Mountain, and, of course, as it was back in those days, a sawmill town known as Helen, Georgia. The characters are real and bring back local expressions and mannerisms that will warm your heart. The story itself is the book, and we don't want to give that away here, but it's one that you will not want to put down. Again, the title is The Valley Where They Danced. The author, Emery Jones, is with us this hour. How are you, sir? Welcome to the prologue. Well, I'm fine, Doug. Thanks for having me. I tell you, after an introduction like that, my wife usually asks for three minutes for a rebuttal. But uh, <laughs> well, we'll, not, we'll have her on. <laughs> we'll have her on a, another hour. Well, she's not up here right now, so we'll let your introduction stand, and I greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Well, we're we're very honored to have you on. Uh, many of our listeners are quite familiar with Helen, Georgia, and the North Georgia Mountains. I mean, you cover. It's not just Georgia, folks. These are Tennessee, North South Carolina, Alabama, probably even further than that. But many folks are familiar with the area that you write and speak about. But your book takes us, well, okay, what would you want to say? No, that's right. It, Helen, oh. is, uh, I think it's the most second most visited town in vacation spot in Georgia next to Jekyll Island. And we have oh, yeah. a couple million visitors yeah. a year. The thing, ab- the thing about your book, though, is that it's not just a normal travel guide or a tour book of Helen. Your book takes us back to a time that we weren't really aware of. It tells us about life in the valley just about 100 years ago. Uh, Talk a little bit about that. How did you research that? Well, uh, I guess it all started, Doug, when I moved back up here from Atlanta. I lived in Atlanta for about 30 years working in advertising. And I think I grew up here, of course. This is home. And I think there's something special about living here, growing up here, and then moving away and coming back. I've seen it in other people, and I've seen it in myself. I've felt it in myself. When you when you go away and you come back, you just appreciate, even greater than if you never left, I think, the area, the mountains, and the history. And so when I first came back up here, I, I decided to write a little book about the county called White County 101, and I think it took me about two afternoons to write it. <laughs> it wasn't a very long book. But it was just 101 things to do, know, and love about the county. And it was very well received, and it had a little bit of history in it. Well, that kind of got me, I met a lady who was the uh, county historian, Shirley McDonald. And Shirley knew more about the history of North Georgia than any human being I think that ever lived. And so she kind of became my mentor and encouraged me to write some other books. So having worked in advertising for uh, a number of years and and with a magazines, Farm Journal magazine, for example, you kind of write what other people assign you to write. And with advertising especially, you go through product managers and things like that, and they, and then you have lawyers to prove everything too, so you have to be very strict with what you write. And I think 30 years of that just kind of wanted me to break loose, just write something that I wanted it to write. So after White County 101, I came up with a book, uh, I actually dreamed about this book. I was in a, <laughs> at a meeting in Minneapolis and uh, woke up in the middle of the night and wrote, wrote down the concept. Uh, and the book title is called Zipping Through Georgia on a Goat-Powered Time Machine with Ludlow Porch and a Parrot Named Pete. 
and that's exactly what the book's about. So that was uh, in, in this book. I dreamed that uh, my friend Ludlow Porch had invented a time machine and invited me to be his first passenger. So we go zipping around through Georgia and, and land in all these historic spots. And the history in it is real, but it's a very fun approach to it. And that was after that. We mentioned Helen, and as you go into Helen, anybody that knows Helen, just outside of town where 17 and 75 highways come together, there's a big old Indian mound that sits out in the middle of this, this uh, valley there. It's got a little gazebo on top of it. But that's the Makuchi Valley Indian Mound, and it's the second most recognized icon in Georgia next to Stone Mountain, according to the people that keep up with those things. And I don't know any way to disprove that, so we're going to go with it. And uh, that's what we in White County call it, the second most recognized state icon. Well, that little mound in that gazebo has fascinated me for years. When I was a kid, I worked for some of the local farmers around, and we'd gather hay out in that uh, mound. And there's all kinds of legends in the valley around the mound, and there's all kinds of legends about the mound. It was, if you went up on it, you'd die within a year, and that horses wouldn't go anywhere near it and all these things. But none of them are true because I went on it many times when I was a kid, and I lived a little bit longer than a year so far. But um, that mound just fascinated me, and you can't go past it without someone stopping to take a picture or write a poem. There's always someone there just looking at it. It draws people. And it drew me to, to, to write a book called uh, Distant Voices, the story of the, the, the Indian Mound. And so that was my first local history book that I did, and it was interspersed throughout, but with some of these artists and poets, their stories about why they had been drawn to it. And that uh, that led to a, a, a documentary that was the first documentary that we had tried to do, because I'm, I'm all about preserving history. And so we started to do a documentary based on the book called Distant Voices, and we, we, we thought we would get a narrator. Well, the more we talked to people, and Shirley McDonald again guiding me to all these people that she knew, and that some of them I had known from when I was growing up up here, we talked to them, and, and as they told their stories, Dr. Tom Lumsden, for example, had researched this man for 60 years. He knew so much about it. As they told their stories, we began to realize we can't find a narrator that's going to do a better job than these people are doing, and the title Distant Voices we had their voices. So I think we wound up with 25 or 26 different people in the movie that uh, that we put together. So uh, that was that was a lot of fun. And then we went on up after that, I wrote a book for the, the uh, local uh, electric co-op on their 75th anniversary called Heart of a Co-op. And that was a lot of history in that about the area. So I'm building up with all this history that I've gotten and the stuff I knew and the things my grandmother taught me and older folks in the county and of course Miss Shirley and that led up to this novel so all these factual things that I knew I wanted to see what kind of put them to practical use and, and just make people be able to not just talk about the, the timber industry in Helen but let people know what it was like to actually be there and what they ate and what they felt. You mentioned the timber industry Right. I'm, I'm sure a lot of people have looked it up, but the timber industry, that's what Helen actually was, was just a little pass-through uh, in, in, a, in a lumber uh, area. And uh, the locals kind of got together, what, about 40, 50 years ago and decided that they wanted to uh, 
turn it into a little bit more of a tourist stop. Isn't that right? That's right. It was. Uh, it's a very interesting story. Helen was was basically dying. It was a little little timber when the timber left and the railroad was taken up. There was a few people that lived there and they had a, you know a store and a, and a garage, but that was about it. A couple of churches, and uh, it's an interesting story how all that came to be. But they these business people met one day and they decided what could we do to make these people that are driving through Helen on their way up to Asheville and Highlands and these other places, what can we do to make them stop here? So they had all these folks come up with some ideas, and some of the people came up with things like a giant water slide. And, and uh, John Collock, an artist who had just been in the Army over in, in uh, Germany, had, had the idea of let's make it an alpine village. And he came back thinking he'd be laughed out of the room the next Saturday morning when they all met and presented their ideas. And to his surprise, everybody just loved it. So they got all the businesses together, and it just became a... Uh, a theme that they all went with, and John did all the designs for the buildings and paintings and everything. And they had the first hot air uh, balloon race, and one of the they only had two or three balloons that first race. And one of the uh, participants in the balloon race, as Helen's now famous for, was uh, uh, Malcolm Forbes. <laughs> so <that's laughs> just, they pulled some heavy hitters in here right off the bat. But it was they kept yes, coming. they did. They all right. Coming. Well, listen, we're we're going to have to. To cut away for just a minute, Emery, we're here on the prologue on America's Web Radio. We're talking with Emery Jones, and we're leading up to hearing about his great book, The Valley Where They Danced. And we're going to be back with Emery after these short messages. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call. And I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare. Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And we are back. This is the prologue. We're here on America's Web Radio, and we're being delighted this morning by author Emery Jones. He's bringing us a, a, a 
plethora of his work, articles and interviews that he's done in the past and books he's written, and we're leading up to getting some information about the valley where they danced. This is a departure from what he normally does. Uh, normally it's a historical fact, documentaries, things of that nature. This book is a novel, and it is characters that come from the mind of Emery Jones and tells a very beautiful story. Before we get any further, Emery, would you tell the folks where they can look up and find the valley where they danced and order their own copy? Well, Doug, I guess the best way to get it is on Amazon. Uh, you can also go to uh, www.yonatreasures.com. That's Y-O-N-A-H-T-R-E-A-S-U-R-E-S. That's uh, our store is Yona Treasures. It's available in a lot of local stores in northeast Georgia. If you're up, up and living up in this area, you can probably go to most any store around, bookstore, and they have it. But if you're out of the area, Amazon's probably the best way to get it. When we had to go for the break, uh, you were in the middle of telling us how this book came about, uh, why the departure from what you normally do. Uh, I don't think you were able to finish that. Go ahead and tell us more about how Valley Where They Danced actually came to be. Well, I had done all these other um, other books about and articles and everything about the history and really got involved with the historical society, not just in White County, but in the Union and Rayburn County, too. Not as deeply as White County, of course, but the local area. But just uh, got to know John Collock and Dr. Lumsden and Dr. Philip Greer and some of the people that really know the history of this area. And they're all older folks at that time who lived a lot of it. And I got so involved in the history of it that um, I think I got. <clears throat> I have a theory that you have to become about 50 years old before you get interested in the history. Now, I've always been a, a, a little bit interested in it, but not. I didn't immerse myself into it until um, uh, I turned about 50. So I, <laughs> that's, my, uh, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. But when, we I, re- when we realize we've become a part of history is when we get interested in it, isn't it? That's right, and also you're at <laughs> cusp of the time where you're, the people that you really wanted to ask these questions are, are moving on and passing away, and there's some of them yeah. still left, and I think it's a great time because I think it's, Every generation, I, I think, has a, an obligation to kind of get a toehold on the history that they know and that that generation just in front of them knew so you can kind of preserve it for the next generation. They may not they may not appreciate it now, but at some point they will. And I think that's kind of what we've done. With Amen. All these, yeah, these documentaries and everything. But his, his hardcore history doesn't appeal to a lot of people. <clears throat> and so even though I had the, the facts, and the dates and all that that go with history books. I wanted to put the reader in the in the period, in the time, in the place, and let them experience what it would be like to be there. And this was my first novel I've written all my life, and and uh, the novel's a little bit of a different animal. So I decided that um, that I wanted to do that and set it in the area, northeast Georgia, where I had studied the history as much as I had. And so that, uh, there was a local legend up here about a doctor who moved from uh, the Macon area up into the Salty Valley right after World War One. <clears throat> I actually found this in an old newspaper article back in the uh, 1980s that a fellow named uh, Scoop Scruggs had written. I think he used to write for the Gainesville paper and maybe some of the Atlanta paper, the Atlanta paper too, a bit. But anyway, I found this legend and I read it and just got fascinated by it. So probably about 20-something years ago, I started a file, 
and I would hear other things about it, and I'd put it in the file. And uh, he, he came up here and married a, a local woman. Um, I can't tell you too much about what happened in the legend or ruined the book for the people who <laughs> haven't read it, but I changed it a little bit. I talked about the lumps, and I said, do you think this really happened? And he said, I'm not sure. Um, but if it's a legend, you can make it happen if you want to, and you can change it any way you want to change it. So I changed it a little bit to include to Little Falls and expand it more into northeast Georgia and pull some of the other history and some of the other areas in. And I think that worked worked real well. But I went back, and <clears throat> as you develop the characters, uh, I wanted to make sure I got the dialect right. <clears throat> and I wanted to get every little piece of history and every fact right, even down to the train schedules. There was a fellow named Des Oliver up in uh, uh, near Clayton who uh, taught at the Raven Gap Nakuchi School of Industrial Arts for a long time, and he ran the railroad museum up there. He knew everything there was to know about that Toledo Falls Railroad. And so I took my manuscript up there to him, <laughs> and I let him read the section, every section that had anything to do with the train. Well, I had the doctor arriving uh, on, uh, on in Clarksville on the train that ran up through the Toledo Falls Railroad. I had him arriving there at 5.30 in the afternoon, and I just made that time up out of my head. didn't think it made that much difference, really, and I didn't really want to write... What if I got him there in the morning, I have to write about what he did all day, so I was taking the lazy way out. But uh, Des read that and just threw my manuscript up in the air. He says, my gracious alive memory, everybody knows that that train came to Clarksville at 9 o'clock in the morning. And uh, <laughs> I didn't know that. And then he, I had another little section of the train where I had the, uh, uh, the I'd done research on the little metal steps that they used on that train that the passengers used to step off and on the the pastor car and i he approved everything i had about the, the step and how it looked and all that but i had two little boys bringing it out of the station and putting it down in front of the, the car well dad's threw another fit about that <laughs> he said think about it emory they didn't have two little boys at every railroad station to bring those steps out he said they kept that on the train and the conductor did it but little tiny things like that so i've got the trains all on the right schedule and uh, then I had a dinner on the ground. You can't have a when the doctor gets up here and they want to introduce him to the community. It, the dinner on the ground served a couple of purposes that let people know how they used to actually do dinner on the ground, and uh, it also let me introduce the doctor to all the members of the community and pull some of those folks into the book too, into the story. And so uh, I had them drinking what I thought they would drink: sweet tea. You know, I mean, can you imagine dinner on the ground at church today with not, not having gallons of sweet tea? Well, this was in 1919, and turns out sweet tea wasn't introduced into the U.S. and to the World's Fair of uh, a few years earlier than that, I think around 1900, up in Chicago. And it didn't really spread out over the country <clears throat> for the next 20 years. It kind of spread. It didn't really catch on in the South until the 20s and 30s. So they were drinking lemonade. And uh, I... You know, they didn't have a lot of ice, and I had them drinking, were putting ice in their glasses, but, of course, it had to be a big block of ice floating in a little foot tub. But all those little tiny details that, uh, if I'd have had iced tea, most people well, wouldn't have known it. That, no, but a lot of people do notice that. Yeah. That's an important thing. Even though this is a, a novel, which implies that it is fiction, uh, you can stop a reader by having some little tiny aspect like that wrong. Right. And, and believe, believe me, I know that. But this is this kind of shows how important that historical aspect was to you, 
right. all the little details that you went back and corrected and made sure they were just so. Uh, and folks, this thing is beautifully crafted. It's well written, and those details are there. I mean, it's just it's just a wonderfully done book. Uh, do you have time to read us a short passage from the book? Sure. Um, Got something picked out? Uh, I'll, I'll tell you a couple things here that I that the, the book starts out in 1979. Even though the uh, story set back in right after World War One, I, I have a reporter come down who's actually related to the, the, the mother of, the, of Lenore Connolly, who's, who's the star of the book, I guess. And uh, I had him interview her as an old lady. And he comes in from Asheville, North Carolina, and he finds her house in the valley, and he goes up and he's trying to get her to tell him the story. And uh, so after he's introduced... Hannah Connolly starts telling the story, and then it goes out of her voice and into the real story. But this is how the book begins. This is how Hannah Connolly began. Let me say this first, Mr. Ryder Man. Heaven and earth mingle more than folks know. I've studied on that a lot. Love is a powerful thing. You only need to read what it says here in 1 Corinthians 13, 13 to know that was a time nobody around here to talk about it at all. Nowadays, this and that, and they'll say their daddy told them so-and-so. Nothing like it ever did happen. But they'll swear by it. No matter. It all come about just the way I'm fixing to say it did. Only promise me you won't write nothing about it till I lay a corpse. You won't have to wait long. I'll be 98 come spring. All right, then. I reckon you got a right to know. Here's exactly what happened all them years ago right here in this valley. And that's how the book starts out. And uh, then, Well, you, you alluded to it a little bit there. I uh, wanted to ask you, your main characters, Dr. Tom Garrison and Lenore Conley, right. uh, they're the tour guides. They're our characters that take us through this adventure, through this story and the history. They both exhibit spiritual connections in one way or another. Tom's is kind of a, a sixth sense, as you describe it, but Lenore's is more of a guardian spirit. Right. What can you tell us about that briefly without destroying the story? Well, the book is <clears throat> the book has a deeper deeper side to it. I think it's, um, I wouldn't say a religious connotation, but certainly a spiritual connotation to the book. Uh, Lenore, when she's three years old, she comes down with a terrible disease that they didn't know what it was at the time, but it turns out it was polio. And she's just about to die. And as the family's gathered around her bed, uh, Lenore sees this uh, angel above her. And, and she even has a name. The angel tells her her name is Lana. And so Lenore starts talking about Lana. And her parents, of course, don't know what she's talking about. But as Lana kind of, she, she the fever breaks, and, and the little girl gives Lana the credit. And so that's the first time she sees Lana. Then as a child, Lana is with her, especially when she's down at the barn uh, milking and different times when she's by herself. And then Lana plays a big role at the climax of the book over at Tallulah Falls. And... Uh, Again, I can't go into that too much without ruining the book for people. And Tom, her husband down in Macon, when he's a little boy, a little bit older than her, he first has this 
knowledge, this inner knowledge that he's going to be a doctor. And then that turned into to other things that happened to him over his, uh, his life, especially his childhood. He knows his brother, Crick, Christopher, uh, his nickname is Crick, uh, is killed in an airplane in World War One. He was shot down over France, and he knew it uh, when it happened, and he just knew. And other things happened like that. And when he saw Lenore for the first time, he knew that they were going to be married. And so he it tries to explain this to her out on the Indian mound in that little gazebo when they went on their first picnic, and she tells him about her her angel, her guardian angel, and then he starts trying to explain to her how he knows things and she kind of says to him you don't really know know these things you, you you just don't know you have an angel too and so he kind of be- begins to realize that but i don't think he ever comes to terms with it and his his guardian angel is not as real to him as as the norse is to her so um folks we're here this morning we're here this morning with Emery Jones, and he's describing two main characters from the great book, The Valley Where They Danced. And we'll be back with more from Emery after these messages. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day, the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory, ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. Thank you, God bless Patriot Conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings for Medicine on Call and participate in a lively conversation. Learn what's happening behind the headlines in medicine. Understand Obamacare and learn how to protect yourself and navigate the system. You're listening to America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And welcome back. We're here on the prologue this morning. We're here with Emery Jones. Uh, as we went into the break, he was describing uh, the little special talents that uh, his two main characters, Dr. Tom Garrison and Lenore Conley, had uh, some precognitive sense and also a, kind of a guardian spirit that the young woman had from very early in her life. Uh, Emery, 
writers tend to base characters on people or folks that they've known or or maybe just met. Is that the case with any of the personalities in the story, the valley where they danced? Oh, yes, absolutely. I don't think you can make up a, a character that, if you don't know someone who represents that character, that so you can kind of copy their traits and things like that. And and Lenore Conley is, um, uh, I took, she, actually I have an aunt named Lenore. She's 91 years old now, and uh, she's based on her. And some of the things that happened to Lenore, like she dreamed about her, um, the Lenore in the book dreamed about her, uh, her husband the day before she she met him, even down to the uh, clothes that he was wearing and the kind of car he was driving. And so I gave that to Lenore in the book. She had dreamed about Tom before the day before she met him, and he was in the. She dreamed about the buggy and that. So that's based a lot on my on my aunt Lenore. Uh, Tom, Doctor Tom, is based on Doctor Tom Lumsden. He was a doctor up here in White County and Haversham County. And probably delivered my age, uh, my my age group of people. He probably delivered ninety eight percent of us. Uh, <laughs> and he, he, you know, just everybody knew Doctor Doctor Lumsden. He's just such a historian and such a fine doctor and a fine man too. And uh, so Doctor Tom is based on the young Doctor Tom Lumsden. Uh, Ray, the brother of uh, of Doctor Tom, has just gotten back from World War One, and he's suffering from what we would call uh, PTSD, I guess, today, but uh, he he was just, they just thought he was just crazy, you know, because he had, he had shell shock, is what they call it, I think. And a friend of mine out in Texas, he's a eight-generation eight West Texas German descent cowboy's cowboy, you know, bull riding and bronc-busting cowboy, and he was in Vietnam and went through quite a, quite a lot of stuff. He was a tunnel rat over there, and, and he told me that for 25 years after he got back from Vietnam, he did not mention the war. If anybody asked him if he'd been in the Army, he just said no. And then he woke up one morning and got to breakfast. He was at the breakfast table with his wife, and she asked him some question. He said, I started talking that I couldn't quit. And he talked for like two or three days until he talked it all out. Well, I had that uh, Ray do that when his younger brother Tom asked him to tell him about the war and what he went through. They're sitting on a bridge in this very peaceful spot, and he he tells him, and he did the same thing that Lionel did. Well, interestingly enough, I guess I had some more traits of Lionel and Ray because the fellow out in Texas, Lionel, called me and said, uh, Amory, i got a question for you. I just finished your book, and I have one question. I said, what is it? He said, am I Ray? <laughs> and I said, yeah, Lionel, I think you're Ray. He said, I thought so. <laughs> so anyway, he recognized himself in, in that, and several of the other characters uh, Wortha, Garrison, Tom's mother is my mother was Wortha, and she's uh, very much patterned after her. Uh, the other bo- other brother that got killed in the uh, in the war in the airplane is, is after one of my uncles that I knew, and then uh, several uh, all the characters that have any role in it. Uh, Doctor Dyer seems to be everybody's favorite characters is the old doctor from uh, Clarksville. And who's the one that gets Tom up here in the first place? And uh, he's he is uh, based on a friend of mine who's actually named David Dyer, just like Doctor Dyer was. And he's also got a little bit of Doctor Doc Adams from Gunsmoke in him too. I kind of pictured. Him. <laughs> well, you have to picture these people when you describe. 
Yeah, yeah. you have to fit. You have to have a, a mental picture in there. And of course, a lot of the people in the book too, all these fictional characters, but a lot of the characters are real. Doctor Hardman, who owned the Hardman farm up here, later became the governor of Georgia, and his family. Uh, they're all very real people, and I had actual pictures of them. So I incorporated the real people with the imaginary characters. But uh, the real people was no, was no problem at all. The sheriffs that I mentioned in the, in the two, two or three counties and that represented those those areas. Uh, a lot of the preachers were, were kind of folks that lived up here at the time. But I hadn't met these people, so I had to talk to other folks and, and uh, uh, get characteristics that they had from people who actually knew them. But, yeah, everybody, I think... Well, we've was, just uh, about covered... We've about covered the assemble of characters in the book, but I was going to ask you, the folks need to know that you had a career in, in journalism and writing for the Farm Journal magazine. And during that time, you've interviewed farmers from every state in the Union. Um, and I was hoping that maybe some of those characteristics and some of those um, manifestations of these people might have been characters in your book. Was, was there a common thread that held these farmers you interviewed together or anything that kept them as one group or were they all strictly individuals oh farmers is one i think one group I, I you know farmers are some of the greatest people in the world people that work in ag in general are great folks but when you when you get to a farmer in north dakota out in the middle of his wheat field and you know he's watching this he's talking to you and watching the storm clouds come up and wondering how his crop insurance is going to pay off if he needs it you know you made some stoic people who get who can cut to the chase with with one or two words and describe the whole situation and and and, and these farmers are just they're strong people and i used a lot of farmer characteristics i think your whole life when you write a novel like this everybody you ever met plays some sort of role in, in putting these people together but yeah always uh Dr. Lanier, who is who is your favorite character in uh my favorite character is is, is uh, like a lot of people say <laughs> is um, David Dyer, the old doctor from Clarksville. He's in his 60s, and he's just a character. He, he's about ready to retire, and he wants to buy him a car, and he's, his wife doesn't want him to have one of those newfangled things. And and uh, he just he, he can go from... Uh, one thing I like about him, that, that I saw this in a lot of farmers, a lot of farmers, when they're with other farmers, they talk one dialect, and they talk to other farmers, and then they can go to Washington, D.C., and testify in front of a congressional hearing and talk like the senators and the Congress people do. And I think Dr. Dyer had that characteristic. He could go out into the field and out into the woods and talk to the, to the woods people in their own language, or he could meet with Dr. Hardman and they could sit on the front porch and have a discussion of, of uh, anesthesiology. And he just could go back and forth. But he was, he's just absolutely he's funny, too. That's the other thing I like about him, too. He has a unique way of looking at life, and he has a great relationship with his wife i think his relationship with his wife and my relationship with my wife were just about the same i took, took that right out of of real life too now the research that you okay the research that you had to do for this book although you grew up there so did that add anything uh to the research or did you have to go back around and visit these areas that you were writing about Oh, I went back to every area, several places the, where the where the climax of the books happened over happens over at Tallulah Falls. I went there and actually sat and leaned up against the same pine tree that I described to Tom leaning up against, um, and looked out over the edge and looked over to where the Cliff House Hotel used to be, exactly where it was. I found that spot when I wrote about the Hardman Farm and and in the house. 
I actually went through the house. Uh, at one point, I had Tom jumping off the front porch, and at the, at the place that I had him jumping, he probably would have killed himself if I, if it was real, <laughs> if he'd really jumped from there. So I changed that around. Uh, I visited every location uh, several times, and um, there was a, a story that I heard about uh, Eugenia Price, who wrote one of her books. A lot of her books, you know, were set over on the coast of Georgia. One of her books didn't sell as well. And the publisher sent her down there and said, uh, "Find out what's what's wrong with." Uh, the, the, it's selling well nationally, but not locally. And they found out. She talked to one old lady, and the lady said, "She said, why is my book not selling as well here?'" And she said, "Honey, you've got a boat sailing up a river that a boat can't sail up." <laughs> so that was my <laughs> that was my mantra. I didn't want to have a ship coming up the Chattahoochee and docking to Helen when that couldn't happen. But but I, that was just kind of a a metaphor for for all the things. The local people here. I mean, you talk about camp meeting, you've got people who have been to camp meeting for four or five generations, and they know everything there is to know. In fact, uh, I had a, I remembered from my own days of going to camp meeting that we would have a rope to divide the rooms and we'd hang a quilt over it, or so I remembered it. But when I wrote it that way and sent it to Shirley McDonald, she had a fit. She said, uh, Emory, you know better than that. It's the hottest time of the year, and usually July or August. And if you hung a quilt up there, the air couldn't flow through, and you couldn't you couldn't breathe. I said, "Well, I remember they were colorful. What were they?" She said, "They were sheets." And I said, "But what about all the color?" And she said, "They were old guanter sacks and fertilizer." So that little change right there, you know, that just little tiny things is what I wanted to to uh, really make make sure I had it right. Oh yeah, you mentioned Tallulah Falls, Tallulah Gorge area. Um, that's only 30 miles or, or thereabouts from Helen, but even today, that's not a straight shot unless you're an eagle. Uh, it's a pretty treacherous little drive through the mountains and the hills and everything else. Uh, what was it like to get over there 100 years ago? Well, they I did research on that, and uh, they had a, uh, a Surrey that they would take over to Clarksville. Then they would, uh, you know, that's about 10, 12 miles over to Clarksville, which is doable in a Surrey. They'd put the, put the horse up in the livery stable. And then they would get on the train, and they would catch the Tallulah Falls Railroad and go over three or four high trestles, and up the one up at Panther Creek was considered especially dangerous, and they had some wrecks there that are pretty spectacular. And they would take the train up there, and then once they got there, if they needed another horse, they had a livery stable there, they could rent them. But most of the time when they got to Tallulah Gorge and Tallulah Falls, there was so much to do there that everything was within walking distance. But, uh, okay. yeah, that's interesting how you figure out, and, and I had to figure out how, how far can you go in a buggy, and I actually went up to a, a doctor, Dr. Scott Hancock in the Valley, who's got horses and buggies, and we, we timed it. <laughs> well, listen, um, tell, tell the folks again, we're here talking about Emory Jones' book, The Valley Where They Danced. Emory, tell them again where they can find this book, where they can order it for themselves. Well, it's in a lot of local stores around in northeast Georgia, uh, other than that, probably the best best place to get it is Amazon. It's on Kindle. Uh, a lot of folks like to read the Kindle version. And uh, our website is uh, com, and they can be ordered uh, ordered directly from the from the website there. I'm sitting here holding a copy. This is a beautiful hard hardbound book uh, with a very nice jacket on it, and folks, you will love. Looking at it, holding it, and reading it. It's a real page-turner. You'll go through it in a heartbeat. Folks, we're going to be back with more from Emory Jones after these messages. 
When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? Do other people smell things that you don't? Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy, no matter what you do? Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps. These are generally benign growths that occur from chronic sinus infection or allergies that are either undertreated or have not been treated at all. At Peachtree ENT Center, we specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery and correction of a deviated nasal septum and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office. We use a state-of-the-art equipment so that you can see the problem. You will be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment. We believe in old-fashioned medicine, where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. You can rest assured that all options will be offered before surgery is recommended, because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. You're listening to America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And we're back. We're here for the last segment of what seems like a, a just a, a very short hour. We're going to have to try to get a clock stretcher or do something here to get more time for some of these interviews. Emery, uh, we're talking about your book. The title is The Valley Where They Danced. And folks who have been around the Hoochie and uh, Sautee, they know what the valley is. But tell us, how did you come about that title? Where, do, where does that title actually come from in your mind? Well, uh, I actually wrote 52 different titles <laughs> for this book, and one of my friends said, just keep writing, and the title will come out of one of the characters' mouths. And uh, it, that's exactly what happened. That Tom and Lenore, are, he's not from this area. And, of course, there's a lot of Indian lore in this thing, and, of course, the mound's an Indian mound. And they go out and they're dancing. Or they, they go out on the mound uh, where they have their first dance, and... I was just riding away, and, it's, and this is what I wrote. I said, Tom reached for her hand. The wide valley of Makuchi spread before them, its foreground dotted with cows. Behind her, acres of corn trembled in the warm breeze that blew across the mound like the very breath of God. It's more beautiful than I imagined, she said. No wonder the Indians danced up here. She pointed to the east. Over there is the Sautee Valley. The Indians live there, too. But this is the valley where they danced. And I realized, I have my title. And that's just exactly how that one came about. That That's amazing. People who know the area, uh, we, we discussed whether we should go here or not, but you said it was all right. Nahuchi and Sautee, that's, that's synonymous with Romeo and Juliet, actually. And uh, to the folks up there in that area, they understand very clearly what that means. Oh, you can't Nahuchi Valley and Sautee. You can't graduate from high school up here without knowing the story. Without knowing that. Okay. Saw two <laughs> two, two tell Indian us, lovers. Tell us right quick. Well, there two you Indian go. lovers. What? 
Go ahead. No, I was going to say, let them look it up oh, and then read your book. And they'll well, it's it. in the book. Uh, it's, in the it's in the book. There you go. There you go. I wanted to ask you, what are you working on now? Got anything new going on? Yes, I'm working on uh, uh, two things, actually. Well, three. I'm always working on a half a dozen, but the two or three that I'm kind of focusing on a sequel to this book that will be set from about 1922 up into the start of World War uh, two and then I'm going to I'm working on another book called The Well that's based uh, on a story that my father got killed in a well when I was just about 11 years old he and another man and I'm writing a book about that and we're doing a third documentary that we're going to do on uh, on another uh, I don't, I don't want to give away what it's going to be right now because we might change our minds but we, we're going to another North Georgia uh, legendary place up here that we're going to do another documentary on and uh, hopefully I'm, I'm working on a script for a play based on the, the valley where they danced and I'm trying my first hand at being a, a playwright it's, it's a whole different animal <laughs> but uh, I think mm. this would make a great play or a movie oh yeah it really would um, so you're going back you're, you're leaving the uh, fiction genre and going back to what you did best well that's not what I meant to say I want to know when are you going to uh, come back and write more fiction well I'm in the process right now I've got about a third of the way into this one uh, the sequel to this one and also, the, the one, even though it's based on the true story of, of the two men getting killed in the well, it's a, it's historical fiction, too. So you're going to fictionalize that? Okay. Yeah, okay. it'll be the same. I like okay. this. This is a fun thing to write. I I, uh, I really like this better than, well, I like it all. I shouldn't say that. I like it all. <laughs> it's, it's, well, you, like do, it. you do such a great job painting the word pictures that people can see and feel and touch, and uh, that's important to readers. And well, those who are readers... A lot of people comment on the dialect in the book, and, and I tried to yes. to write it and then go back and think, how would my grandmother or my granddaddy have said this? And, and I think that's kind of, having actually heard people speak those words that way kind of helps. How did you verify that, the, uh, the dialect that you used? How were you able to verify it? I talked to a lot of older folks, and, and that's how I did it. And, and a lot of it, I mean, I, I remember I lived with my grandparents, and they had a lot of older friends. So from the time I was one until I was 13, I heard that I heard the language that I used, and it was just stuck in my head. So very much, a lot of it just came very much right out of right out of what I remembered. It adds color, adds realism, adds so much to the story. I want to move on a little bit here. We mentioned in the opening that you were a good friend of a gentleman named Bobby C. Hansen. Now yep. the folks listening to us knew him better as Ludlow Porch. That's right. And we lost Ludlow about five years ago, I guess. He, he was an absolute treasure. Uh, you wrote one of your books about him and and with him in some degree. Uh, Zipping through Georgia on a goat-powered time machine with Ludlow Porch and a parrot named Pete. Now, that was published just about a year or so after Ludlow had passed. Tell us, how did you how did you meet Ludlow Porch? Uh, after, well, I've moved back up here. Ludlow lived not far away oh, he'd moved back to the mountains too was broadcasting out of his studio over in, in uh, Dawson County and I had an idea for a project that I wanted Ludlow to narrate several years ago this was about 10 or 12 years ago about driving across Georgia from Chattanooga down to Valdosta and all the things that you go past and all the, the history and the funny things and all that so I went over and I, I met Ludlow and I approached him and asked him uh, if he'd do this and he said, yes, I will. And he don't know why I'll do it. And I said, why? And he said, you're the first person that's asked me to do something that hadn't said, and all you need to do is come up with about $25,000. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, 
since you didn't ask for any money, I'm going to do it. And so we spent about a year on that project. And uh, unfortunately, Ludlow had diabetes at that time, and he couldn't really read the script. So I had to get at one studio, and I would read the script that I'd written, and then he would repeat it. And, and that's how we had to produce that. But we got to be friends. And uh, one of the highlights of knowing Ludlow over the years was that he mentioned he'd never been to the Alamo, and I had mentioned that San Antonio was one of my favorite towns. And so we wound up, make a long story short, I got to take Ludlow to the to San Antonio. We spent about a week down there, and uh, I got to take him through the Alamo. Now, can you imagine, looking back over your life, when you're thinking of one of the great experiences I've had, being able to say, well, I took Ludlow Ports through the Alamo. <laughs> <laughs> and that was just a, a wonderful thing. But when we got through... Ludlow was just fascinated by it, you know, and, and uh, when we got through, I said, well, what would you think? And he said, well, it sure did seem like a lot of trouble for something that could have just marched around. <laughs> 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 that was Ludlow's view on things, but he was just a great guy. He could order a ham sandwich and have the whole restaurant laughing, and, and all he did was order a ham sandwich. So he was just a natural comedian. But I he had was. this idea for this book um, and uh, of, of actually going back in, uh, in time and seeing... Uh, History happened right in front of it. In front of us, I wanted to restrict it to Georgia, so I went over and told Ludlow about it, and he said it's a great idea. He said, "What do you want me to do?" And I said, "Well, start for starters, I want you to describe a time machine." He said, "Well, give me a week." So I went back in a week, and he told me what a time machine looked like. It's two John boats turned upside down on each other. A goat. It's powered by a goat that runs on a treadmill. It's got to have incorporate pictures of uh, Dolly Parton and John Wayne. And it's got to have a little ovulating fan on the back. It ovulates back and forth, and that's different. It's a female. Your male fan doesn't ovulate, but it blows a lot more hot air. So this had to be a particular female ovulating fan. And it had to have a parrot. <laughs> and it, and the bear, it had to have a bad bearing in the uh, treadmill. So the goat runs on the treadmill until it gets it up to white max warp, which is three miles per hour, chasing a basket full of rutabaggers. And when the bad bearing squeaks, Ludlow would rock to make the parrot squawk, and the squeak and the squawk triangulate on the Barentine bevel inside the great microphone, and that's time travel. And we operated it on the Flebish 7 system. We started with the Flebish 1, developed all the way up to the Flebish 8, but the only difference between the Flebish 7 and the Flebish 8 is the horn part, and you don't really need a horn for time travel, so we went back to the 7. And that's how it came about. And about that time, Ludlow had a... a first of a series of small strokes and he wasn't able to to help much so i wrote the book and i went over and uh, read him the manuscript after it was finished and i put this on the back of the book from from uh, an endorsement because this is exactly what he said after i read the manuscript to him he said this ranks right up there with the grapes of wrath and some other book i read one time so <laughs> that was high praise from ludlow <laughs> Those in the Atlanta area that remember Ludlow Porch on uh, RNG or WSB, either one, uh, know exactly what Emory's talking about here. And I understand that uh, the book came out in 2012 and that it actually won uh, the Pulitzer Prize. It did. Uh, it won for the Pulitzer Prize humor. Award. Yes. Mm-hmm. It was a, Best it was, Humor Not Disparaging the Poultry. So, that was the category uh, it won, yeah. It yeah. Was, now, folks, we're... We're spelling that just a hair different than what you might imagine. It's spelled P-U-L-L-E-T, apostrophe S, surprise. So yeah. uh, very, very distinguished award in uh, Ludlow's category. So That's right. And we've so far, I think we uh, 
we've won that award the, the more times than anyone else in the, in the history of literature. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, tell the folks one more time where they can find that, also the Valley Where They Danced, all of your work. Where can they find it, Emery? Everything everything that we have is available at uh, www.yonah, Treasures, T-R-E-A-S-U-R-E-S dot com. Um, they're all there. The uh, Most of the books are on Amazon. Uh, the um, A lot of people like to read on Kindle, and they're, they're, uh, all the three of these are available on Kindle, too. So it's uh, that's the best place to get them, probably, if you live out of this area, is just to go to Amazon and order directly from them. We've had a great time this morning with Emory Jones. We're about to run out of that time. Tell us real quick, do you have anything that we forgot that you really need to get out to everybody this morning? Well, nothing other than uh, uh, if you're uh, looking for a good read and uh, you want to, you love history and you love a good story, try uh, The Valley Where They Dance. I think you'll like it. It's getting really good reviews on Amazon, and and I appreciate all the people that have left those reviews on Amazon. And uh, just uh, get out there and enjoy the history and, and have a good time when you read anything. Got any shout-outs, any hellos to anybody out there that might be listening this morning? Well, I'd like to say hello to my wife because if she's listening, I may be in trouble from what, from what I said earlier. <laughs> she's uh, she's <laughs> she's the one that we've been married for uh, 30, oh, Lord, if I get this wrong and she's listening, I'm in bad trouble. I think it's 37 years right now. So been a good one, been a good 37 years. So shout-out to Judy. Very good. Wise man. Uh, I'm going to quote a great author from North Georgia and say, uh, as he once said, the hardest part is finding a place to stop, and that was you, and that's where we are. Emory Jones, I want to thank you so very much for being here this morning. I hope that you've had a good time and that the listeners out there are going to look into this work and order their copy of The Valley Where They Dance. All right. Thank you very much, Doug. I've enjoyed it. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to have you here on the prologue. Tell your friends about us, okay? Um, Listeners want you to tell your friends about the show and how they can listen live and on the podcast absolutely free anytime they like. Just go to the show's webpage. So now, I am Doug Dahlgren. I thank you very much for listening to the prologue. For myself and my guest, Emery Jones, I say have a great rest of your week. Be good to yourselves and each other. Read a book. If it's not one of Emery's, maybe you'll choose one of mine. And I'll see you all again in just 167 hours. Take care. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.